Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have such a salvation, complete, sufficient salvation, that sin is not an issue anymore, that at the cross Jesus Christ paid the price in full for those sins, and that is no longer an issue, and that by faith alone and Christ alone we can have eternal life, be justified, and never worry about losing that salvation. Father, we thank you for the security that we have that is based upon your character and not upon our works. And, Father, now as we study your word and continue to work our way through these wonderful chapters in Hebrews 9 and 10 dealing with the atonement, we pray that it will enable us to have a greater appreciation for all that was done for us at the cross and all that you have done in teaching us, telling us about these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, and last time, which was two weeks ago, and unfortunately Thursday night just seems to have been taking such a hit this year in terms of uh, Bible classes, and it's not over with yet since Christmas is also on a Thursday, so we will miss Christmas, but we will have class on New Year's night. We will have class that Thursday. I'm just not going to give up all these different Thursdays. We've given up enough already. So we're in Hebrews 9. We missed last week, and two weeks ago, I think I blew a lot of circuits when I taught on uh, some new ideas, new observations on the temple and the tabernacle specifically based on what is revealed in Hebrews chapter 9. Now, what's important about Hebrews chapter 9 is the, to understand where the chapter is going. And where this chapter is going is a discussion of the complete work of Christ on the cross and how that was depicted in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement uh, in, in the tabernacle ritual, not things as they later happened in the temple, either the Solomonic Temple or the Second Temple, but the Day of Atonement. Uh, under the original tabernacle regulations as outlined in Leviticus. So if you look at down to Hebrews 9.28, uh, 9.28 we read, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he shall appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So the focal point here is that he was offered once for sin. And that that is that so that is where we're going and unpacking the implications of that 
in terms of our future destiny. See, that verse ties them both together, the first advent sacrifice and the second coming, which is the completion of salvation, what we call uh, not just glorification, because this isn't talking about the rapture. It's talking about when Christ comes to establish his kingdom. And that's where we should be looking in terms of our own spiritual life, recognizing that we are in training today for that future position to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing in chapter 9 is uh, unpacking all of the implications, or many of the implications, that come out of the Old Testament ritual, specifically on the Day of Atonement. So that's what we have to keep in mind. Keep that focus on this is related to the ritual of the Day of Atonement as described in in Leviticus, because when we understand that, it's going to help solve some of these other these other problems. Now, after class last time, it was apparent, apparent even on the video that the pulpit was stormed. There were at least five or six people coming up here with all kinds of questions, not necessarily in a you know people saying, "Well, I, I don't agree," or "I don't," but, but some people were coming up and. And uh, they're saying, well, what about this verse and what about that verse? And this makes sense and that makes sense. And and then over the next couple of days, I heard from several people who said, okay, all my circuits got blown. You went through that so fast. Can you cover it again? Let's let's go back over it, slow down a little bit, and let's let's make sure we really have this. So there's going to be a lot of repetition tonight. And and I haven't changed my view since last time, but I have enhanced it. I've further discovered a couple of statements I made last time that weren't quite correct, so we're going to have a couple of corrections this time and uh, just just honing in on um, the, the basic uh, issues related to the location of the altar of incense because that's the that that's an issue that that is related to the inerrancy and infallibility of the text, the trustworthy of the text, but I think it also is going to have an impact on the typology that we have in, in, uh, on the Day of Atonement in relationship to understanding this connection between the altar of incense and the mercy seat. And so we just might get to that point this time. So just to uh, remind you, we're in Hebrews 9, 1 through 4. Let's look at the passages, and then I'll go over the problem again. The apostle begins, the writer begins by saying, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. Now one question that uh, was posed to me is why does the writer mention it this way? Because the table and the bread are really two separate things. But what we have is a sense of threes many times in in the tabernacle, and here he maintains the threes by talking about the table and the showbread uh, separately, uh, which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place, literally the holies. Then verse 3 says, behind the second veil, and that's where we get into the problem. 
he says, behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having, and there you, we have a, just a participial form of the, the verb for to have or to hold, indicating what is there. I mean, there, you can't go into the language of that participle and say, well, there's some uh, unusual nuance there that means it's really someplace else. It, it, you trace through, and I've done this, trace through the use of, of, of this verb echo, in Hebrews, and when it's used in this participial form, it indicates that something is there. So it is saying, behind the second veil, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, and which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded in the tables of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, where the author is going to go from here has to do with the Day of Atonement, but it raises the question because all of us have seen these pictures and schema plans of the tabernacle that look something like this. You have the, uh, the tabernacle proper, even though in Hebrews here it refers to both of these as tabernacles or dwelling places. Uh, you have the division of the inner sanctum, which is called the Holy of Holies there to your left. And on the right, the holy place, and the entry would, you would be coming in from the right side, which is, which is from the east. And you come into the holy place. On your left is the menorah. On your right is the table of showbread. And the, all the pictures that we've seen and that I've used in the series on the tabernacle, you would then have the golden altar up next to the veil, which is depicted by the a purple line dividing the two rooms. Then you have the Holy of Holies with one piece of furniture in there, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, that's the way we've always looked at this. But if you're standing outside in the holy place, which you have to be when you use the term behind the veil is the Ark of the Covenant, so you're on the other side of the veil, the writer of Hebrews is writing from this perspective where he says behind the second veil, the first veil is the outer curtain, the entryway into the holy place. Behind the veil, the inner veil, you have, having, is the holy place having, having in its possession within the room, the typical normal use of that language, you have the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant. So that doesn't fit this depiction. It would fit, though, this depiction. And in this floor plan, I've moved the altar inside the veil so it, it, that it is directly in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And I think that's how it was in the tabernacle and also in the, um, in the uh, temple, in Solomon's temple. Now, this raises a number of questions that people have had over the years. I mean, this is considered one of the big problem passages in trying to solve this problem in uh, Hebrews. The first solution, there are four solutions that are offered when you read the literature, and I've read a lot more and had discussions with several people. The first solution, which is one we automatically reject, but we have to state it because that's one that you find really among liberals, is the writer of Hebrews just made a mistake. And so there are those who say he was an Alexandrian Jew or he was a uh, Jew in the diaspora somewhere else and he wasn't familiar with the layout 
in the in the temple. And so um, this is just really an absurd solution. I think last time I mentioned uh, Franz Delich in his commentary on Hebrews quote actually quotes somebody from uh, much earlier an 18th century writer who just says this guy has to be just abysmally ignorant to to think that uh, that if he made that kind of mistake, no Jew who knows anything about the tabernacle or the temple would make such a mistake as to put the altar of incense inside the Holy of Holies. It's so, so he just can't be making that kind of mistake. But we would reject it just on the grounds of inerrancy and infallibility, that the writers of Scripture don't make mistakes because the uh, Spirit of God superintended the writers of Scripture so that he made sure that what they wrote was guaranteed to be free from error. And there's no textual problem or anything like this. Some people have said, well, what about the, that preposition behind the veil? Meta is the preposition, and you just don't have any wiggle room there. It means uh, it's, it's used in a locative sense, indicating behind or after or on the other side of. So we really can't figure out some sort of alternative there that's hidden in some cryptic use of the Greek. The second solution that's offered, and this is one that will come out of the King James Version, and people who, a lot of people who spent their years, early years, just reading the English text to the King James. Because in, in the King James, the word, you won't find altar used there in verse 4, you'll find the word censor. And in the King James Version, it, it will say that it, that the Holy of Holies, and, and New King James as well, holds the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant. And so they would say, look, this isn't talking about having the altar of incense behind the veil. This is just the golden censer that the high priest would carry with him into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. But there is a a problem with that because... The writer of Hebrews, if we look at just the description, just going back to the earlier verses, says, says, For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread. He's not talking functionally here. Neither is he talking about the way it was on only the Day of Atonement. See, if we're going to take the solution that it's the golden censer, you'd have to say, well, this is talking only about that that time when the high priest is taking the censer inside the the uh, holy of holies, and that just doesn't work because the way the writer is writing is he's just describing the normal status of the tabernacle. For there was a tabernacle prepared, which were the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And then behind the second veil, there was a t- tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. So he's, he's writing descriptively about the normal, uh, what is normally uh, there in each of these rooms, their normal uh, furnishings. And it's not until he gets down until verse 6 that he begins to talk about function or operation. He's simply being descriptive there. So... That's one problem with uh, understanding the altar to be, uh, be the golden censer. Another problem just has to do with the word here. 
And the word that is used in the Greek isn't the normal word that is used for an altar. It is a different word. And it is the word thumiaterion. And I don't have this up on the screen. Uh, thumiaterion is spelled T-H-U-M-I-A-T-E-R-I-O-N. Now, there's debate over this, the meaning of the word, because the, the core meaning of thumiaterion has uh, any vessel that is used to carry uh, incense or that has anything to do with the burning of incense. So it could refer to a censer, but it can also refer to the altar itself. It's, it's a more generic term. In fact, you can look at various ancient translations, whether it's the Syriac uh, Peshetta or the Vulgate, and they take this to refer to a censer as the King James and New King James uh, take it. And there are other uh, ancient uh, translations and commentators who take it as the altar of incense. It it could go either way because the word itself is not uh, is not that is not that technical. So that's um, that's part of the issue here. So when we look at this this uh, second option, the altar is a censer based on the word used. We recognize that in the Septuagint. The full use of the word was thusiasterion, thumiamatis. Now, that second word, thumiamatis, is where we get the word thumiaterion. And thumiaterion uh, comes into usage during the intertestamental period. Now, this is where it gets kind of technical. And so, to make it sim- simple, in the Septuagint, which was translated during the intertestamental period, the Septuagint usage is different from general Hellenistic usage of the word. And there's several writers who uh, build out the case for that. And so that those who were writing strictly within the scripture, for example, uh, Thumiaterion is used in a couple of passages, for example, in Second uh, Chronicles uh, 26.19, and Ezekiel 8.11 to refer to the golden altar. But when you get into extra-biblical literature outside of the canon, for example, in Philo and Josephus, they're not as picky about the meaning for Thumiaterion, and there it's used as a synonym for the altar. So there's clear evidence that the word that's used here that's translated altar and in some versions censor could go either way And there's clear evidence from Josephus, from Philo, who are first century writers. Philo was a Jew who lived in Alexandria, northern Egypt. Josephus was a, he was a priest. He was from a priestly family. He was a general in the uh, Roman army during the time of the uh, Jewish revolt. Uh, He was a general in the Jewish army at the time of the the, uh, revolt against Rome. And then he got captured and he turned sides, sort of a Benedict Arnold, many Jews would say. But he was very well educated, and he wrote a history of the Jews. He was, he was um, uh, sort of patronized by the Flavian Caesars and by Titus and uh, took care of him and financed his operations when he went back to Rome after the, uh, after the rebellions. And he wrote this history of the wars of the Jews, a history of the Jews, and so we rely a lot upon Josephus for first century information. He doesn't live at the same time of Christ. He's a little bit 
uh, old, uh, younger, so he isn't born until about 40, but he's uh, in his 30s during the time of the uh, Wars of the Rebellion. So we look to Josephus for a lot of word usage ideas that come from that particular, uh, that particular period of time. Also in the early church, you have Clement of Alexandria in the 2nd century, as well as Origen in the late 2nd, early 3rd century, who also used the term thumiaterion to refer to the altar of incense. The point is that the word can mean either censer or altar of incense. The problem isn't with the word, it's with that adjective golden. Because when you look at the descriptions in the tabernacle, the only golden censer is one that's associated with the menorah, with the lamp. There's no golden censer that's associated with the bronze altar or with the altar of incense. It was a bronze censer. So, once again, if you call this a censer, then you've got a problem. You're either going to have to argue, as some do, for uh, later usage, because there was a gold censer that was used in the Herodian temple. But there's no gold censer used back in the tabernacle period, and that's the period that is being described and focused on uh, in this particular uh, in this particular passage. Another thing that comes up in terms of understanding this issue is that um, is that in in the Pentateuch there's no use of this golden censer. The term for golden, which I just mentioned, the term that is used in the later Second Temple period is the term kaf, which refers to a golden censer used in the, uh, in the Herodian period. The term for censer that's used in the tabernacle in Leviticus, for example, in Leviticus 16.12, is the Hebrew word machta. So you don't have a word at all that is associated with a golden censer. And another part of this argument is that the Septuagint used the word purion. Now, pur, P-U-R, is the word for fire. So purion was like a fire pan, as it's translated in some versions, or a censer. And that's the Greek word that's used in the Septuagint of the, of the, of the, um, of the Pentateuch. And the purion is always of bronze and is not of gold. So... The first problem that, that we have with this being a censer is that the author of Hebrews is writing and describing what's in each room as a standard fixture and not just what is happening during the event of the Day of Atonement. The second problem, the one I just pointed out, has to do with all the language issues, that the term here just can't be limited to censer, the fact that it's golden, it just, the golden censer solution just doesn't work. I was going to say it doesn't hold water, but it doesn't hold fire either. It just doesn't work. Uh, a third problem for this, uh, uh, for, for this word is that, um, is that the context of Hebrews 9 is talking about the tabernacle talking about the service in the tabernacle, not later on. And one of the things I kept seeing when I would read people, for example, someone brought up Adersheim. Um, some of you may have 
I've seen Alfred Adersheim's famous work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, big, thick book, and um, just excellent resource. But he has another book on the temple, you know, the priesthood and its ministry and services. But it's all about the second temple period. It's not about Solomon or it's not about Exodus. It's about primarily what's going on in the second temple period. And what I'm saying is we have to be careful not to read Second Temple descriptions back into First Temple activities or tabernacle activities because there were uh, some notable differences. And one of those notable differences is that, number one, there was a veil in the tabernacle that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy places I have depicted here with this purple line. In the Solomonic Temple, there is a veil and a wall. Now, last time I said that I didn't find a reference to a veil, and that's because when I did my word search, I only did a word search within Kings. I didn't check Chronicles. In Chronicles, there is a an extremely brief reference to the veil. Second Chronicles 3.14 simply says, he, that is Solomon, made the veil, and it uses the technical word for the paraket, which is the, the, the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. He made the veil also of uh, violet, purple, crimson, and fine linen. And that's all it says. It doesn't say where it hung in relation to the wall. But it's very clear that there was a wall there, and either the wall and the veil were right next to each other, or there was difference between them. Some have suggested maybe the altar of incense was between the two. I don't know. Now, that brings me to current events. Current events, this is a National Geographic fine conservative bastion of scholarship. But they have a good article in here on the cover articles on King, the real King Herod, architect of the Holy Land and have a fabulous picture on the front cover of Masada. And uh, I have not had time to read it. I just happened to be um, walking through the new HEB the other day, and as I was walking out the door, it caught my eye, and I grabbed it and brought it home, but I haven't had time to look at the article at all. However, the one thing I do like, I love maps, is that they have a map inside that is really good. And if somebody... We need to get another copy of this just so we can get the map to use in prep school because on one side you have a a map with all the contemporary countries in the Middle East, Egypt here, the Sinai, Saudi Arabia, uh, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, Israel, the West Bank, Syria, Lebanon, Cyprus, Turkey, and that's great to give give you a good understanding of where, where things are. I love maps. I've always loved maps and like to read maps. And I realize there are some people who are challenged when they read maps. So that's really a good thing to have to orient geographically. But on the other side, they have this chart called Jerusalem's Holy Ground, which is a great graphic. What they have down here in this square is the the look of the Temple Mount in the post Muslim period. And so you have the centerpiece here is the uh, uh, Dome of the Rock. Out here you have the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and they have a cutaway here to see down the area which the Crusaders used for a temple. There were various arches that were used down there to support the temple platform. 
as Herod rebuilt it, and they were used by the crusaders to stable their horses. So they mis- mistakenly called it Solomon Stables, and it's been excavated in recent years illegally by the uh, uh, by the Muslims, by the Waqf, and had, they've built an underground uh, uh, mosque down there now. And here you have uh, the, pic- the palaces that the Umayyad dynasty built there during the um, early Muslim period. Their evidence of that's pretty much gone now. But then there's a cutaway over here of the Dome of the Rock and what it looks like inside and where the foundation stone is, which is where they believe the Ark of the Covenant was. The foundation stone, they believe, is where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. So there's a good cutaway there. Then just above it, there's a picture of the uh, temple platform for the second temple period and what that looks like with a cutaway over here of what the uh, temple, second temple looked like, the Herodian temple. And so that's good. And then above that, you have a platform depiction here of what the Temple Mount looked like during the Solomonic period. And out here they have a picture of their reconstruction of the Solomonic Temple. Now, there's no archaeological evidence of the Solomonic Temple. But if you look at this, they have a solid wall between the holy place and the holy of holies. Now, one of my points here was that the function of the of the altar of incense on the Day of Atonement was that the smoke from the altar of incense would fill the inner room. Now, the only way that could do that would be to open up the door and put a fan in there to blow the smoke in. Or if the door is closed, then you have a problem getting enough smoke in there to cover the Ark of the Covenant. So, But they do just, they depict simply the wall. They don't have a wall and a veil. So that's a a uh, mistake which they missed on. Okay. So other differences. In the Solomonic Temple, they had ten menorah and ten tables of showbread, whereas in the tabernacle there was only one. In the Herod's Temple, there's only one. But Solomon had ten, t- ten tables of showbread and ten menorah. The Solomonic Temple is much, much larger, and all of the furniture, externally the bronze altar, is enormous compared to the uh, tabernacle bronze altar, as is the um, uh, the laver the, for ritual washing. Remember, it's set on the backs of 12 oxen out there, just this enormous swimming pool almost that sat out in the, um, in the courtyard. Another difference that we see here in, in our text in verse 4 states that uh, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Ark of the Covenant, verse 4 says, were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. That's the tablets of the Ten Commandments. However, when you get into the description of the uh, Ark of the Covenant in Second Kings uh, 7 and 8, all that's mentioned is the, is the Ten Commandments. There's no longer a mention of the manna or the or Aaron's rod that budded. They're, they're not inside the ark anymore, and they somehow got misplaced, I guess, or I don't know, nobody knows what happened to them, but they're not mentioned uh, again. So in the Solomonic Temple, you have an ark that's absent the uh, Aaron's rod and absent the 
uh, the manna, but that was there in the tabernacle period. You also have, of course, the major difference with the second temple from the early ones is there's no Ark of the Covenant. So there are clearly these distinctions, and I think people don't give pay enough attention to the fact that there were slight variations that occurred down through history. And so having brought all of that out, I uh, suggested that uh, way to, the way to handle some of the situations in the Old Testament is to look at the perspective that we have in Old Testament passages. So if we use this as a backdrop, then I'm going to just reference a couple of passages that we have in Exodus. For example, in Exodus 26, 33 to 35, it mentions the uh, table of showbread and the menorah as being outside the veil. And if you look at those passages, verse 34 and 35 says, You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the Holy of Holies. You shall set the table outside the veil. Now, using the chart up there as our orientation, if you're standing in the holy place or outside the tabernacle proper itself, it wouldn't make sense to say set the table outside the veil. Especially when you look at the way there's a dis- the description flows in Exodus. Beginning, the, the description for the construction of the tabernacle begins in chapter 26, and it begins with the Ark of the Covenant. It doesn't begin, as we did in our study, out with the outer courtyard and the outer wall hangings. It starts from the middle and works itself out because the orientation is always from God's perspective, not from man's perspective in the description of the, of the tabernacle. So if you're inside the Holy of Holies and God says you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand opposite the table, then it makes sense. Now, the reason that is important is because when you come down later to Exodus chapter 30, verse 6, it says, You shall put this altar, and see the background picture here is the picture with the altar in the holy, in the holy place. You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony. And so you're, because there's a separation from chapter 26 to chapter 30, you forget what the perspective is. And so when you read this in isolation from chapter 26, it's easy to say, well, this is where the, where the altar of incense would go. But if you maintain your perspective, of, which you have all the way through this section, of being inside the Holy of Holies, then when the text says you shall put the... Um, you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat. And that uses a preposition in the Greek, I mean, excuse me, in the Hebrew, which means what is in front of, what is before, what is in the presence of. And so it, it indicates near proximity that the golden altar was in the face of or right in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you run into a couple of other problems with this in Leviticus chapter 16, which uh, I went back and looked at a lot of this stuff, and what you find in almost every discussion of 
Leviticus 16, I read through several commentaries looking to see how they handle this. You might as well turn to Leviticus 16 with me because we'll be there when we finish this section on uh, the tabernacle. When we look at verse 14, it describes the fact that after the high priest goes in and puts, or after he has put incense on the fire and the clouds filled the room, in verse 13, verse 14, we read, He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side and before the mercy seat, which is that same preposition, lipni, which means in front of, and so we get see the same idea that it's of its immediacy right in front of the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his fingers several times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. Now, what does he have to do to do that? has to go back outside. This is verse 15. He shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil. So now he's back inside the holy place. So the perspective, again, again is from inside the holy place. Now do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel because of their transgression for all their sins. And then we skip down to about verse uh, 18. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord. Now he's gone inside the veil now he goes outside the veil to the altar that is before the Lord. Everybody I read to a man identifies this altar as the altar of incense. But as I pointed out last time, 81 times you have the word Mizbech for altar in Leviticus. And 79 of them clearly refer to the bronze altar. The reference to the Mizbech in Luke 4 with the sin offering calls it the altar of fragrant incense. So it's very clear that that's talking about the altar of incense. You have three other uses of the word altar in uh, Leviticus chapter 16, one prior to verse 18 and I think two after it, and they each refer to the bronze altar. So the only conclusion you can arrive at is the altar in verse 18 has to be the bronze altar unless there's some way that the, there, there is some clear indication that he's talking about uh, the altar of incense. Everywhere else in the context, it's the bronze altar. And whenever he's going to talk about the other altar, he changes the terminology. The reason people get confused is in the Exodus chapter 30, it clearly states that on the Day of Atonement, the priest is to, supposed to put blood on the horns of the altar of incense as well. But remember, he goes, he goes out of the outside, and so it makes better sense to think that when he's inside, he's putting uh, blood on the uh, altar, Ark of the Covenant. He also does it on the altar of incense. It's just not mentioned here. And then he goes out, and he puts it on the, on the uh, <clears throat> bronze altar, which was typical with a sin offering, and with the with the uh, burnt offering, they would do that, and that's what the bull and the goat were. They were the uh, sin offering and the burnt offering. So that takes us back to understanding some things just about um, the ark of the, the the what's happening on the day 
of atonement. And last time I went through all the details, uh, point by point, trying to summarize all of the details that were involved in that. And that's what I want to talk about next. But before we get there, I left out one thing. In 1 Kings 6.22, in reference to the second temple, I mean, excuse me, in reference to Solomon's temple, there's a statement that the altar is, the altar of incense is in the Holy of Holies. It doesn't use the exact same preposition. It uses a shortened form of that preposition that's used in Exodus. But what's interesting was as I consulted and was reading through probably 15 or 20 different commentaries on, on Hebrews, outlining the different arguments and reading what everybody had to say, that most of the people that referenced it, I mean, everybody referenced it, seemed to indicate that that the altar was in the uh, was viewed as being uh, in the holy of holies in terms of but it was because of function that's the third argument now what I've done so far let's back up so I don't get get you all confused we dealt with the second view which is the altar is actually a sensor based on the word used the third view is the it has to do with the fact that this is just talking about the function of the altar in Hebrews 9 that because it's so closely associated with the Ark of the Covenant and because the smoke from the altar of incense would fill the Holy of Holies, that therefore the writer of Hebrews uh, is talking about it being behind the veil functionally. But as I pointed out, number one, we're not talking about function until we get to verse 6 in Hebrews 9, and it just seems to be somewhat uh, lacking in... in uh, in, in real strength. And as I've read through these commentaries and these various arguments, one of the things that appears is that those who are, who are arguing for that position and arguing against the second position all go to Second Kings 6.22 to say, see, in the description of the Solomonic Temple, the altar of incense is spoken of as being in the Holy of Holies also because of association. See, this is a great example of, of the power of a presupposition. We've talked about presuppositions before. It's that you know something is so deeply ingrained as an assumption about life that it, it, it controls our interpretation of something despite certain evidence. We've just heard something over and over and over again, and it just is a, is a deeply ingrained assumption about reality that shapes how we interpret and understand things going on around us and so at times we have to, in the Christian life, really take out our presuppositions and challenge them because it's often at that presuppositional level that we're holding certain ideas that are contrary to Scripture. And so what we see here is people have it so ingrained in them that that altar of incense is out in the Holy of Holies that they come to a passage like 1 Kings 6.22, which seems... which indicates that the, the altar of incense is in the Holy of Holies. And they'll say, see, it's spoken of as being in the Holy of Holies there too because of, func- because of the function. They, just, they don't even think, in fact, I only know of about th- two commentaries I ran into that take the position that I do that the altar is inside the Holy of Holies and no one else even discusses that as the fourth option. It's not, it doesn't even occur to them They've seen the charts. Uh, they've heard what Josephus and Philo and others say about the, the uh, first century temple 
that the altar of incense is out in the holy place. And that is such a controlling reality that when they go back and they, they read these other things, they, they, they don't even stop and think about those prepositions and the perspective and where's the writer standing or any of those things until all of a sudden, and I was that way too, until all of a sudden I, I, I went, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe there's something different here. And it just, it just shocks us because we're, we've, it's been so ingrained in us that it looks the other way. And it's not this way, but it's just this way in the tabernacle, not in the second temple period. Okay? Now I hope, having gone through it again, that everybody has got that at least somewhat figured out. Now the key issue that we run into when we get into Hebrews is that the focal point here is on the Day of, of Atonement. Verse 6 states, Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continuously entering the outer tabernacle, performing the d- divine worship. But into the second, that is, into that second tabernacle, uh, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking uh, blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Notice he recognizes that none of the ritual... As I pointed out last time, none of the ritual in the Mosaic law dealt with sins of what it's called literally sins of the high hand or intentional sins. Uh, Those intentional sins were covered through direct confession of sin to God as David exemplifies in Psalm 51. All the ritual covers are the sins that are committed in ignorance, the uh, sins that aren't willful sins, and the sins related to ritual sins. Uncleanness. Now, let's look at this whole thing about the Day of Atonement because by going through Hebrews 9, we're going to come to appreciate what happens on the cross in ways that we never have before because of the way the writer of Hebrews goes back to the Day of Atonement to start unpacking all of the details there. Uh, so that we understand things a little better. And the first thing that we have to understand is just what in the world does this word atonement mean? What does it mean? And uh, I've d- touched on this in the past to some degree, and each time I go back to it, I have to shake my head. I read more articles and get other contradictory or differing information. And I've come to some slightly newer, maybe less fuzzy conclusions. Um, most of us were taught that the basic meaning of kafar, K-P-R, those are the three consonants in the Hebrew word, that the basic meaning of kafar had to do with covering in a literal sense. And so that, that worked well. We have the Ark of the Covenant, and inside you have the, the law and the manna and the Aaron's rod that budded, and so... Blood is put on the mercy seat. Actually, when we look at it, there's only one dab of blood on top of the mercy seat. The other seven go on the floor in front of it. So I think it's sort of misrepresented the idea that that this blood is just smeared over the top of the mercy seat and literally covering what's underneath it. That's not quite the idea, although it's mixed in there. That's where it gets kind of fun. 
So the English word, though, that translates kafar is a word that's made up in English from a word from the compound phrase at one mint. Atonement, A-T, at, O-N-E, one, M-E-N-T, at one mint. That's where we get the word atonement. They just scrunch those three words together, and we have a new English word, atonement. But what does atonement mean? Now, I challenge you, if you want to have some fun and frustration, go to your English dictionary. Check the Oxford English Dictionary. Check Webster's, uh, I think it's 12th or 13th edition now. Check uh, Collins, any of the other English dictionaries. And you get this daisy chain runaround. That atonement means to reconcile or to expiate. Okay, well, what does expiate mean? It means to atone. All right. What is, and the concept of atonement really pictures reconciliation, that people are coming together and becoming one. So you look up reconciliation, and that means to atone. So see, what happens is we define one word with another word, and then when we go to that word, it just directs us back to the first word. We're not getting any real definitions. We're only, we're only running around the dictionary and deepening our confusion and increasing the density of the fog. So what does this word really mean? Now, if we investigate some things like the Hebrew lexicons that we have, there's just as much of a fog, and there is the recognition that there's one form of KPR that means that's used in Genesis 6 in reference to putting pitch covering the ark uh, Noah with pitch. And so that idea is there, and that is a uh, cow stem. And then we have the words that are used in Exodus many times, mostly the word uh, atonement, which is used a little over 100 times in the Old Testament, is used in ritual context or priestly context. And uh, it has the uh, various ideas. In the, in the Septuagint, it's translated in many cases by the word katharizo, which means to cleanse or to purify. And cleansing has the idea of wiping something away. Now, just to give us a little more confusion, uh, one popular dictionary based on the English text is done by Spiros Zodiades, who is a Zodiades, who is a Greek native Greek speaker, and he defines kafar this way: he says it's a verb meaning to cover, to forgive. Notice that. Pay attention to this because he it's interesting to expiate and to reconcile. Now, we've all seen the fact in the New Testament that reconciliation, expiation, forgiveness are all distinct concepts. All of them are distinct doctrines and distinct facets to the work of Christ on the cross. So he says this word kafar means all of them. Hmm. That's interesting. He goes on to write, this word is of supreme theological importance in the Old Testament as it is central to an Old Testament understanding of the remission of sin. What is the remission of sin? What does remission mean? It means canceling sin. Canceling sin. When you cancel a debt, what's that called? Forgiveness. Oh, wow, we're getting into some interesting territory here. Forgiveness is also referred to as cleansing. First John 1.9. 
So, okay, well, that's, that, that fits. That, that goes together. He goes on to say, at its most basic level, the word conveys the notion of covering, but not in the sense of merely concealing. Now, there's an important nuance, because when we talk about atonement covering sin, we have that visual of blood covering the sin. It almost conveys that idea of a cover-up, a cover not not. I don't mean that in a real negative sense, but that's sort of the idea of a cover-up. And yet when we talk about the mercy seat, and the word for mercy seat in the Greek uh, comes from the Hebrew kaphoret, but the word that's used in the Greek is hilasterion, which is the word that's translated propitiation. Oh, now we have another idea here. We've got reconciliation, forgiveness, expiation, and some dictionaries will even talk about redemption. So we've got redemption, expiation, reconciliation, forgiveness. All of these different ideas all pop up and, and different de- definitions of atonement. Well, Zodiades goes on to say, it is therefore employed to signify the cancellation or writing over of a contract. What an interesting concept. That's like that that's the idea of of what we see in Colossians two. We're not going to get there tonight. I want to go there because this it's really interesting how it ties together. Colossians two, twelve to fourteen talks about the fact that that on the cross God nailed to the cross the debt of certificate against us, canceling it. The death of Christ canceled that. And that is referred to in the context of Colossians 2, 12 to 14 as forgiveness, positional forgiveness. That's what happens at the cross. There is a positional forgiveness that occurs and a genuine canceling of the debt of sin. Christ paid the penalty in full at the cross for everybody. It's just very, very clear there. And we're going to have to go in there and investigate that just a little bit to, to understand this. So Zodiades says, it's therefore employed to signify the cancellation of writing over of a contract in Isaiah 28:18, the appeasing of anger. Now, I don't like the word appeasing that much, um, and maybe it has a legal idea, but that's really how propitiation is described, is appeasing or satisfying the judicial demands of God. And so when we look at this idea of covering it, not, it has an idea of canceling as it looks manward, but as it looks Godward, what is it doing? It is canceling, or it is, it is covering up his, his demands, it's resolving his righteous and, and holy demands, and that's the idea of satisfaction, that his justice, his justice is satisfied. Now, the root idea of the word, in, as it appears in the cow stem, which doesn't have to do with the ritual, Hebrew has different stems, and, and each of these does something to the word. So the cow is the basic root stem, and then you have the PL, which intensifies the meaning, and so it picks up a different level of meaning. The uh, hithphael, uh, uh, is, is, or hithphael is causative, the hithphael is reflexive. These ideas come up. So the root idea in the cow means to cover, to, to paint, or to smear something. But in the PL stem, which is the stem we're dealing with, it means to atone, appease, make amends. And the participial form, kofir, means to ransom, 
There's your redemption idea. The cognate in Akkadian means to wipe something off or to cleanse it. However, in the Arabic, the Arabic cognate means to cover or conceal something. And that's where the debate is today among scholars. Does the Hebrew word have more in common with the Akkadian idea of, of wiping away, or does it have more to do with the, uh, the uh, and cleansing, ritual cleansing, or does it have more to do with the Arabic word that has the idea of, of covering? And a lot of scholars are moving more to the Akkadian. The Arabic is, is, is um, attested mostly in post-Islamic writings, which is pr- fairly modern, and we're dealing with a word that goes back at least 2,000 years prior to the Islamic period. So uh, there's the sort of the state of the debate as, it, as we have it today. Now, in summary, what, we, what I think coming to now is that God chose this word because it is a multifaceted word. It incorporates all these different dimensions and facets of how God solves a sin problem. And so we can't just, just capture it in one word. And it, that makes it a great word for describing in a complete sense what Christ does on the cross. In terms of the mercy seat function, we're talking about propitiation and Christ solving the, God's, the problem of God's character. Uh, in the uh, idea of the blood being applied, the blood relates to the, re- the price that's paid, uh, the substitutionary atonement. This brings in the redemption idea. The covering idea brings, into, brings in the idea of cleansing and uh, forgiveness, which is then emphasized on the, the Day of Atonement, remember on the Day of Atonement, one, you have about three major things that happen. The first major thing is there's a uh, burn uh, excuse me, sin offering first and a burn offering. Why, why is it in that order? It's in that order because Aaron has to solve his sin problem, confession of sin, and then recognize his commitment to God with the burnt offering before he can even go into the Holy of Holies. That's the same thing we practice all the time. You have to confess your sins before you can worship or live your spiritual life or move forward or anything of that nature. The second thing that happens is the, the whole ritual involved with the mercy seat and putting the blood on the mercy seat and the horns of the altar. And then the third thing that happens is the thing with the scapegoat. Now, nothing on the Day of Atonement is related to position, I mean, is related to experiential living, experiential spiritual life. It has to do with the annual payment of the debt of sin by the nation. And the blood, it's not that the blood of bulls and goats can't do anything. It can only do it for a year. And it has to be renewed every year. So what happens at the end is he comes out and he sacrifices, he has a two goats. On one he puts his hand, recites the sins of the nation, and then kills that goat. The other goat is then taken out into the wilderness. It's not taken down the street or across the valley or over the next hill. It is taken by a trusted assistant, the text says. Why? Because if you get some lazy person with no work ethic, 
They're, they're, as soon as they get around the corner and nobody can see them anymore, they're going to let that, that goat go. And what's that goat going to do? He's going to come right back. But the whole point of this is to show that these sins are completely, totally removed and will never be brought up again. And so that goat is taken out into the wilderness where it is let go and never finds its way back because sin is the sins are completely and totally paid for by Christ and they're not the issue. And that's not talking about experiential forgiveness, although that's true there. It is talking about the reality of the fact that Christ canceled the debt on the cross, period, for everybody, believer, unbeliever, the debt was paid for. The penalty was paid for, period. But that didn't get people saved. It just means that the debt of sin is paid for. But they're still spiritually dead. They're still lacking righteousness. They're still uh, in, a, in a state of condemnation until they trust in Christ as their Savior. So we have all of these different aspects and facets of the work of Christ on the cross, all of them exhibited in this one word that is just, just loaded. And this is what is depicted on the Day of Atonement every single year, and it pictures that once-for-all complete payment for sin of Christ on the cross, which is exactly the point that the writer of Hebrews is going to make in uh, the rest of Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll start getting into that a little more. Yeah, we will meet next week. No class next Tuesday night. Pre-trib is uh, in Dallas. The pre-trib conference is in Dallas next Tuesday. So there will be no class Tuesday night, but we will be here next Thursday night for the continuing study of Hebrews 9. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to uh, come to a greater appreciation, focus, fine-tune our understanding of all that you provided for us in Christ's death on the cross. Father, we pray that we might be mindful of so much that was done for us and that this might move us in gratitude to uh, press on in our spiritual life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.